0: Hi, Todd,
1: how are you? Fine, how's my connection?
0: I'm on another subpar Skype line with Todd Dissitel, the molecular primatologist at New York University. He's got the information I've been waiting weeks for, the results of the DNA analysis from the giant ground nests on the Olympic Peninsula, those 10-foot diameter woven nests that a few people think might have been made by Bigfoot.
1: Better
0: sound. And I've been on pins and needles about this for weeks. What if they've really got something? Got what if they've the made a huge find? So like but what if they haven't? This makes me nervous. So ah, my so palms are sweaty. Like okay, here goes nothing. So what did you find out? What are, the, what are the results? Well, we sequenced
1: five different samples that they had collected a while ago. Part of the problem was they're fairly old, and so they're slightly degraded. Nevertheless, we still got millions of individual sequences.
0: Sequences of DNA.
1: None of them were of an unknown primate. The only primate we found was human, and it was specifically real human, not just close to human.
0: Was there anything at all weird in the samples you got that was just a little bit different or inconclusive? Well,
1: going down my list, I got some bats, some shrews, let's see, and then I got lots of bear DNA, um, as always, as well as mustelids, so like skunk or weasel, rabbits.
0: Really? Man, bears and shrews and humans and bats, but no Bigfoot. Bigfoot. I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing. A series about Sasquatch, science, and society. It's a story about Bigfoot and those who are searching for it, and why we want, so very badly, for something like Sasquatch to be out there. I'm not in the least surprised that the tests found all those different animals— Although Todd did mention one weird thing, horse DNA. And this wasn't a place where you'd find horses. It's too steep, too overgrown.
1: I suspect that came in, you know, as a probable contaminant.
0: Oh, that's kind of interesting. So back in episode five, when we first talked about DNA, you might remember that I mentioned how contamination could be a problem. Here's why.
1: Anybody near that site? who's walked through manure or a field somewhere else is going to be carrying DNA with them.
0: He's speculating, but it shows just how sensitive these DNA tests are and how they pick up even the smallest amounts.
1: Not only do you need to, you know, be gloved and use sterile equipment, you basically need to be pretty sterile yourself. Humans aren't very
0: sterile. Basically, you almost need to treat it like a crime scene. I mean, they are trying to
1: carry out a proper forensic analysis. So yes, they don't need to have the full, you know, biohazard suit. Cause again, we get all of the DNA there. So if they leave some of theirs behind, we'll see that. But but again, the only primate DNA we got was human.
0: So much time and effort and waiting. And the strangest DNA belonged to a horse? Probably because of contamination? I'm kind of bummed. I mean, I saw those nests. They were weird. So that's it? Really? Nothing? Even if it wasn't Bigfoot, I wanted it to at least be some sort of new discovery. And if I'm feeling down, I can only imagine how Jeff Meldrum is doing. He's the anthropology professor from Idaho State University, and the guy who sent in those nest samples.
2: You know, I've kind of learned, I've, I've sort of steeled myself against negative results or inconclusive results because that has occurred so often. I mean, there have been many, many times when we thought we might have had, really have had something. But there was the this major caveat that the DNA was very degraded.
0: That's true. Those samples were pretty old by the time they were analyzed. Sun and rain had battered the nests for a while before they bagged them up. And it sounds like they should have been stored differently, too. Because ice and moisture had built up in the sample bags. So if Meldrum and the Olympic Project, the Bigfoot Research Organization out in Washington, if they can find more nests, newer nests, they might be able to get better samples.
2: You know they have mapped, I think, 21 plus nests along that particular drainage.
0: This is the area I went to way back in episode 1, and the nests sat on a ridge line up above a creek.
2: They now want to go over the ridge to the next drainage where conditions are very similar and see if there are any examples of nests to be found there.
0: And then there's one other thing. Meldrum repeats the fact that the only primate DNA found belonged to humans. And that raises a question for him.
2: We know that, uh, say, chimpanzees share anywhere from 96-98% identical DNA with us. And so... If this creature is even more closely related to us, then could we be mistaking Sasquatch DNA for human DNA and dismissing it as contamination?
0: I mean, it would have to be really closely related to us, which seems like a long shot. And yet, here I am, crossing my fingers that they find more of these nests, get better samples, and try again. Which kind of gets to the question at the heart of all of this. Why? Why do we persevere even when the evidence doesn't add up? What do we get out of chasing this ever-elusive creature? Why do we believe? Michael Shermer seems like the right guy to answer at least one of those questions. He's the author of many books, including Why People Believe Weird Things and The Believing Brain, a science historian with a background in psychology, and the publisher of Skeptic magazine. Our environment, he says, creates our beliefs.
3: In most of our beliefs, you know, we, we, we arrive at them for whatever reason, emotional, social, peer group, parents, upbringing, culture.
0: We're influenced by friends, family, colleagues, society in general. And as a result, we develop certain beliefs. Later, we come up with the evidence to defend and rationalize those beliefs. But the beliefs usually come first.
3: If I ask you, why are you a Republican or why are you a Democrat? You'll give me 12 reasons, oh, I'm pro-choice and I believe in gun control. You'll give me good arguments, but probably that isn't the reason you ended up there in the first place. And that's true for most of our beliefs.
0: It's not a scientific approach because to some degree, we've already made up our minds. We try to find evidence that shores up the belief we already have. Not exactly objective.
3: We're not these Mr. Spock logic machines. We're just not. You know, reason is a tool that you have to employ actively and it takes some effort to do so. And it's easier to fall into anecdotal thinking. I vaccinated my son and, you know, three weeks later, he had these weird symptoms, took him to the doctor and he was uh, diagnosed with autism. The anecdotes don't count. That's, again, the problem with big fun hunters. These are anecdotes and anecdotes are not data.
0: Shermer has spent a lot of time debunking pseudoscience and superstition. And, no surprise, he's skeptical about Bigfoot.
3: To have, say, centuries of sightings be supported by a a real species, there there couldn't just be three or four. You would need a breeding population of a couple hundred at least. And so by chance, we should stumble across one of these bodies that died.
0: Yeah. We know we need a body to show the rest of the world that Bigfoot is, in fact, real. So Bigfoot people keep looking. Shermer says that's not a bad thing in and of itself. In a way, you kind of have to do that in science, like the SETI people I know. He's talking about the group of scientists searching for intelligent extraterrestrial life. You know, they'll say, well, we
3: don't know. Yeah, but, you know, why are you looking? Uh, My sense is, is they kind of believe there's probably something out there. Why else are we looking? or people that run uh, the particle accelerators at CERN, you know, looking for the Higgs boson.
0: CERN is a research institute in Switzerland. Scientists there were trying to find an elusive physics particle, the Higgs boson.
3: They wouldn't look if they didn't think it was probably there. But of course, as good scientists, they say, well, we don't know until we run the experiment. But of course, we think it's probably there because we have some good arguments. Yeah,
0: that's sort of normal. It's normal for the Bigfoot people to keep looking, too. They wouldn't be looking if they didn't think it was there, if they didn't believe. But Shermer still argues the evidence isn't in their favor.
3: Now that we have so many, you know, seven and a half billion people roaming around the earth and and most of them have cell phone cameras now, uh, if anything, the number of sightings should be going up. And with so many roads, with vehicles, it'd be more roadkill uh, or dead bodies on hiking trails that you would come across and that's not happening.
0: So the belief in Bigfoot seems contrary to the evidence. That doesn't seem to bother Squatchers. They talk about strange hair they found, or fleeting shadows, or the feeling of being watched in the woods. They pull out their phones and share photos of supposed Bigfoot footprints, or recordings of weird sounds. They hold up these little bits and pieces as proof of Bigfoot's existence. But Shermer says this is a textbook example of confirmation bias.
3: That you look for and find confirming evidence for what you already believe and you ignore the disconfirming evidence. Our minds or brains are are not like scientists, they're more like lawyers, uh, marshalling evidence in support of your client.
0: In this case, he argues, the client is Sasquatch.
3: Then you interpret uh, neutral signs as being evidence of that. In the same way that ghost hunters, uh, you know, you and I might go into an abandoned theater and see a shadow or hear a, a weird noise and think, well, it's an old building. But if we primed you to say, you know, this building is haunted, the stories are incredible, now we're going to take you through and and tell us your feelings you have about this, subjects say, oh, well, you know, yeah, I had this really weird feeling. I got tingles and the air was kind of cold. And so basically you see or perceive what you uh, already believe
0: to confirm it. I wondered about someone like Grover, though. The guy was an actual scientist. He knew about bias.
3: And the smarter somebody is, the more educated they are, the better they are at navigating around that problem and coming up with good arguments for why they're they're probably right. They're better at rationalizing beliefs they arrived at for non-smart reasons.
0: By all accounts, Grover's reasons for seeking Sasquatch had to do with his lifelong interest in anthropology and human evolution. But some of those non-smart reasons, as Shermer calls them, could grow out of early life experiences, like seeing Bigfoot movies, or our relationships with certain people, like a parent who believes in Bigfoot. We're taken with the whole idea of Bigfoot, we believe, and then we look for things to back up Bigfoot's existence, the exact opposite of how science is supposed to work. But Squatchers argue that they don't believe, they know, they saw what they saw, they heard what they heard, and ultimately, they say they don't care what other people think. Now, belief is a loaded term in this world of Sasquatch. My cousin Grover certainly didn't like it.
1: Well, I wouldn't say I believed there was something out there. The term "belief usually means an opinion held because it makes you feel
0: good. Meldrum also doesn't call himself a believer and even admits to not being a hundred percent sure
2: how, how could I be? I mean, other the experiences that I've had have always been uh, less than absolutely definitive, and I wasn't there when the film was shot.
0: He's referring to the Patterson-Gimlin film.
2: I wasn't there when the footprints were laid down. You know, I have to say, I'm not 100%, but I am quite convinced. I'm convinced, you know, up there to the 99.99%. But I have to be honest. I can't, otherwise it it becomes belief.
0: He has to be honest. He has to leave this room for doubt because he knows there's no definitive evidence. 100% certainty sounds irrational. For scientists, especially belief doesn't amount to much. So even if they are personally convinced of Bigfoot's existence, they know that the Shermers of the world need something indisputable. And they don't have that yet. Wild Thing fans, I have a serious message for you. If you're not already talking to your kids about aliens, it's probably time to start. Just this year alone, the James Webb Space Telescope found distant planets that might harbor life. Archaeologists claimed to have found mummified aliens. And extraterrestrials even got a shout out during congressional hearings. No doubt your kids are asking lots of questions, and it could be you're not sure how to answer them. Let me recommend my new book, Is There Anybody Out There?, which arrives on Earth on October 3rd. This middle-grade book, based on Season 2 of Wild Thing, explores the question of whether we're alone in the universe using science, humor, and fun illustrations. And it'll leave everyone better prepared for the possibility of alien life. Help kids learn how to tell the difference between science fact and science fiction. Look for Is There Anybody Out There? in all bookstores and online. Or for more information, go to WildThingPodcast.com. I know I haven't seen everything that's out there about Bigfoot, or heard all the arguments in favor. But because of this lack of hard proof, I don't know if Bigfoot is real. I'm just not sure. I'm not even half sure. And yet, I still want to be. So it really isn't about science and logic. There's more to it than that. People continue to search for the Sasquatch, to hold out hope for its existence, because it gets to something deeper, something elemental. And when I asked why Bigfoot exerts such a strong pull, a few answers kept reappearing over and over again. Like the idea of Bigfoot as a wilder version of us.
4: I think everybody loves Bigfoot, whether they think the animals are real or not. And I think it has something to do with the archetype of the wild man.
0: Cliff Barrickman could be considered Bigfoot royalty. He's been a Bigfoot investigator for 25 years. The last seven of those has been as a co-host on Animal Planet's wildly successful show, Finding Bigfoot.
4: Sasquatches represent us in a way. Um, They are us in a way because we've left that behind, but somehow they've persisted in that lifestyle where we once thrived. In fact, um, some of us might even long for those days.
0: Bigfoot as the road not taken. An idea of the life that we, homo sapiens, would have lived if we hadn't started farming, paying taxes, and working for the man. We get back to our roots through Bigfoot. Well,
5: it's sort of a wonderfully uh, romantic belief to hold.
0: Ian Tattersall, the human evolution specialist at the American Museum of Natural History, doesn't believe in Bigfoot, but can definitely see the appeal of a wild cousin.
5: That there is some creature out there in in the woods that's sort of human-like but hasn't sold out to uh, modern civilization. I think it's a wonderful uh, romantic notion to have.
0: Bigfoot is family, or could be. It would be like finding a long-lost relative, a famous one at that, like Cousin Grover, but bigger. And I can see why that's tremendously exciting, especially since Homo sapiens have always thought of themselves as being alone in the world. But they haven't been
5: alone for very long. And um, it seems that you know, within the last 40, thirty thousand years, we have basically eliminated all of our hominid relatives, of whom we know at least four, but maybe there are more, uh, from the face of the earth. And maybe, maybe there is some kind of sort of residual guilt involved here, and that we would really like to think of ourselves. Um, not quite as creatures that have done away with all of their um, extinct relatives, but we've left something there to flourish uh, uh, in a parallel kind of a way.
0: For an anthropologist like Grover, the idea must have been incredibly appealing. It sparked the wonder of what it would be like to study a former version of ourselves, to look back in time. And maybe, since we managed to wipe out all those other hominids, This would be a chance to atone, an opportunity to save something instead of just destroying it. I mean, let's face it, humans haven't been very nice to other species.
5: And we've eliminated our closest dominant competition. We're doing a pretty good job on eliminating the apes, which are our next closest relatives and our our closest living relatives. And uh, we're putting a lot of pressure on faunas around the world of all kinds.
0: And we're not very kind to our planet either. Cliff Barrickman again.
4: Looking around with the cement and the pollution and we're crap in the bed that we sleep in. But yet somehow they've avoided that predicament.
0: They, meaning
4: Bigfoot. I think that probably that's why it kind of tugs at us. They represent that something that we've left behind that in a way we long for.
0: That idea of polluting our own home is another one that came up again and again how humans are damaging the environment, how maybe we're driving Bigfoot to extinction. So finding and saving a Sasquatch could be seen as a way of protecting our natural resources. John Kirk, a Canadian policeman, puts that reason at the top of his list.
6: The raison d'etre for any Bigfoot research group is the ulterior motive, the important motive, which is conservation and preservation. That's what I'm doing it for you have to prove they exist before you can save their habitat.
0: If Sasquatch exists, it's definitely a rare species. So finding one would probably mean a bunch of environmental protections.
6: And I think habitats worth preserving plain and simple. But if you could put um, a biological rarity into that equation like they did with the spotted owl, similarly, my objective is not to go out there and stop industries from cutting trees down. But it is to preserve that habitat so that Sasquatches can thrive in their environment. My goodness gracious me, that's the only reason I would ever want to show the world that they existed.
0: Well, let's be honest here. That and personal satisfaction. Maybe a little bit of, I told you so. But you can understand the sentiment. Even if they don't exist, there's nothing wrong with wanting to protect the environment that they might live in. In fact, Bigfoot would be a great mascot for conservation. That's Kathy Strain's argument. She's been with the U.S. Forest Service for her entire career and thinks Bigfoot could become a stand-in for Smokey the Bear. I've always wondered why we haven't used Bigfoot more as a
7: as a come out and camp. You know, we should have a come out and Bigfoot campaign to get families outside so they can join enjoy the outdoors, get a little exercise, figure out some stuff about the forest, we could have this represent the outdoors.
0: You know, come out to the woods, search for Bigfoot, get to know your forests.
7: You know, we always have these campaigns of get people out of the cities and everything we've been doing so far isn't working. Nobody's coming to the forest, so we need to try something different. And if, and if
0: I can lead that effort using Bigfoot, I would love to. Are you listening for a service? Bigfoot could be the ticket to getting more people out hiking and picnicking and a way to inject new life into our forests and parks. But beyond finding a long lost relative or preserving the environment, there's another reason that Bigfoot tugs at us, the mystery, the sense of the undiscovered. I think it's because that means that there's still something out there that we
7: haven't solved, that there's still a mystery there's still wild lands. There's still something uh, natural about outside. And so the idea that Bigfoot exists means it isn't all built on. It's still got woods. It still has these beautiful streams. It's still um, wild. That there's still something out there that we don't know anything about, and
0: that's okay. And if we do find it, well, that kind of changes everything. Suddenly, it's not about amateur Bigfoot hunters and citizen Squatchologists out in the forest. In fact, those woods probably end up off-limits. The scientists step in. The government steps in. Everyone wants a piece, and Sasquatch ends up in a lab or at the zoo. You walk by his cage with your kids. Look, there's a Bigfoot. They used to think they weren't real. Pretty cool that they found it, right? Now let's go look at the elephants. Talk about depressing. Depressing. It's bad enough to see tigers behind bars. So I'd argue that definitive proof could ruin the magic and turn Bigfoot into just another ordinary creature. We like a good mystery, something that we can't quite explain or don't completely understand. Think about the thrill we get when we glimpse something exotic or how fascinated we are with unexplored places the anticipation of going somewhere wild past that first line of trees into the deep, dark woods. Who knows what's out there? Or what we'll find? Robert Piles studies butterflies.
6: But I'm not limited to butterflies. I'm a general naturalist and I've spent 60 years of my 70 doing a lot of natural history. And a lot of what one can learn about Uh, the living world through butterflies is transferable to vertebrates as well. So I have a pretty good biological background as well in order to look into the, uh, the science of Bigfoot.
0: Pyle looks a little like a young Kenny Rogers. He has a Ph.D. in ecology and environmental studies from Yale. He's a prolific writer of essays, novels, and natural history, including his book, Where Bigfoot Walks, Crossing the Dark Divide. Pyle thinks this idea of the unknown, the wild, explains why the mystery of Bigfoot continues to hold our attention.
6: Looking at the the wildness and the the enormity and the um, depth and the texture of this land, we can just about imagine that Bigfoot could exist. But when the forest is finally tamed outright, then one will no longer be able to even imagine the presence of giant hairy apes in the forest and with that we'll flee not only the reality of Bigfoot but the shadow of Bigfoot and all of the other creatures and all the other things beyond the campfire that go with it.
0: If our world becomes so tamed so pruned and landscaped and paved that the idea of Bigfoot doesn't even seem possible then we as humans are worse off spiritually depleted he says.
6: I think we need it in a deep-seated psychological way with our origins I think it goes all the way back to what we came from.
0: It's almost primal.
6: We still need that, that that avatar outside, beyond the fire. We need that, what's beyond us, because of our own evolutionary origins. And once we lose that, I think we're probably all that much more susceptible to becoming tools of a fully mechanical electronic culture.
0: In other words, non-human and worlds away from our origins.
6: Frankly, I think if we lose our connection to the wild, uh, we'll be far less human, which means far less animal. Thoreau said, we are conscious of an animal within us.
0: A lot of people want to stay connected to that animal part of us, and love the idea of a world wild and unexplored enough that Bigfoot, or something like Bigfoot, could still be out there. And yes, if it's not already obvious, let me say it plainly. I want Bigfoot to be real. I want to believe. If my cousin Grover were alive, he'd probably be laughing at me. Because these poetic, romantic feelings are as far from scientific as you can get. And since he's the reason I'm even thinking about Bigfoot, we're going to end all of this with a pilgrimage to see him.
4: Let's go to the other side since we have this table that's actually
0: falling apart. You might remember from way back in the first episode that I first learned about Grover from an article in the Washington Post. The story said that Grover had donated his bones and those of his dogs to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. He gave them all of his papers, too, and most of this stuff is in the suburbs, in the nondescript beige building that houses the Smithsonian's anthropology archives.
4: Where... Grover
0: stuff. Dave Hunt is searching through floor-to-ceiling stacks of lockers and cabinets. Is it in here? He's the collections manager for physical anthropology at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. He's a cheerful, friendly man with a bristly gray mustache, and he oversees a veritable treasure trove of fascinating things, taxidermied animals, relics from across the globe, and Grover himself
4: he actually contacted me <clears throat> and said, "Well, I understand that you are taking bodies for the museum. I want to, you know, do that, but I want to be articulated into, a, you know, the skeleton." When he said that, I, you know, this was 2001, and I said, "Well, that's multiple thousands of dollars to do, and unless we had some reason for doing it, there would not be that expenditure."
0: So Grover struck a deal with the Smithsonian. If they weren't gonna put him on display, they at least had to put the skeletons of his three dogs in the drawers with him, especially his favorite, Clyde. The museum said yes and took all his papers and his teaching materials too. Stuff like animal skeletons, a handful of human skulls, lots of bones and molds for making replicas of bones.
4: And then of course, all of his Bigfoot footprints that he had
0: Grover's collection of giant, plaster-casted Bigfoot footprints. Yep, the Bigfoot stuff is here, in the Smithsonian, one of America's greatest research institutions. I dug through boxes of it, looking through handwritten letters to Grover, old photos, yellowed newspaper clippings, and hand-drawn Bigfoot sketches. But Grover himself is not there. He's right in downtown D.C. in a giant glass case in the National Museum of Natural History. Dave Hunt had told Grover he would probably never end up on display. But then a colleague needed something spectacular for the final piece in an exhibit on forensic anthropology.
4: I just went, well, I got the, the, the end. And I, was, uh, I talked to him about Grover and Clyde. And then I showed him that picture of Clyde with his paws up on Grover's shoulders. And he says, well, let's wire them up like that.
0: And they did. It's jaw-dropping. A tall, six-foot-four skeleton of a man leaning back slightly with the almost equally tall skeleton of a dog up on its hind legs, its paws on the man's shoulders, its muzzle just below his chin, as though setting up for one last sloppy wet face lick.
4: People thought it was great, and I was personally moved by the fact that There's Grover being able to oversee and watch education because that was one of the things he said to me when when we were talking on, you know, he said, well, I guess, you know, I might as well just have my skeleton there, even if I can't be wired up because I've always been a teacher and I might as well continue to be.
0: You can go see him, too. He and Clyde are still together in their glass case on the ground floor of the Natural History Museum, overseeing students in an interactive science education lab. I think he would have loved to know that he's still teaching. I think he would have been happy to know that his work still serves as the example for Bigfoot hunters as well. But unlike me, who enjoys the mystery, he'd rather have this question answered. In fact, he would have liked it settled a long time ago.
1: Not when I'm old or when I'm dead. I would like it settled now. I do not particularly enjoy the search for the Sasquatch. I would like to see the finish of the search, but the search itself, the activity, the mystery, the intrigue, the romance of it, I find this a bit of a drag. (laughs) I've got other things to do. I've got a regular profession. I'm studying human evolution. This is possibly a part of it. It is far from the whole picture.
0: Sorry, Grover. The search continues. And honestly, I hope it does for a long time. Because after all this, I'm not sure I want to find Sasquatch. I'd prefer the mystery remain intact, for people to go out to the woods and look for something. To feel a sense of possibility and discovery. To have something unknown lurking just outside the campfire ring. To see a fleeting shadow and feel a chill down the back of your spine. To believe in a wild thing. Keep your love for Bigfoot and the show going. Leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. This really helps us get the word out about Wild Thing. And check out our website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's Wild Thing Podcast, all one word. You can get one of our super soft, awesome t-shirts, and maybe ride away with one of those sweet Soleil bicycles. We're also on the usual social media suspects. Find us at Wild Thing Pod. And if you see Sasquatch in the wild, make sure to snap a photo, blurry or otherwise, and share it using the hashtag WildThingPod. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. Special thanks to the Smithsonian's National Anthropological Archives. Wild Thing is created, reported, and produced by me, Laura Krantz, with help from Kelsey Ray. Alisa Barba is our editor. Scott Carney is our executive producer. Our music is composed by Ramteen Arablui and mixed by Sanaz Meshkinpour. But a podcast like this isn't just made by a handful of radio nerds. So I want to acknowledge the generosity of a few other people, including Shane Corson and Derek Randalls of The Olympic Project for showing us the nests. Cindy Cadell for taking some Bigfoot newbies into the woods. Todd and Diane Neese for their hospitality at Beachfoot. Jeff Meldrum and Todd Dissitel, both of whom patiently gave me hours of their time. Diane Horton for sharing her memories of Grover And of course, absolutely every voice you heard in this podcast and the dozens that you never did.